G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and welcome to Lockdown, character strengths and silver linings, your guide to applying positive psychology in seclusion. I'm joined once again by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey. Dad, good to be joining you on the podcast again today. Good to be with you again, Rowan. Now, we've called today's episode Transcending Trauma. So now I suspect that uh, transcending is probably one of your favourite words as it is as it is one of mine, but uh, why have we called today's episode Transcending Trauma? Well, often when people suffer from significant trauma reactions, which can have a huge impact on their mental health and a very hurtful, difficult impact, but many people recover very well. And actually, many people recover to the point where they no longer regret having been through the trauma because of what they've learnt from it. Now, that might be a process that unfolds over quite a period of time, but it's realistic to hope to gain something from dealing with trauma and coming through it. And I find that with working with many clients who've suffered from trauma reactions, it's one of the main areas I specialise in, there's something about working that area which is uplifting because you see many people come through it in the long run, gaining something from the experience. And as always on the podcast, as you say, we do want to have a a positive message with all this stuff, but... Look, we recognise that today's episode is going to be pretty heavy in certain ways and we do want to mention, of course, Lifeline, uh, whose number is 13 11 14, who if there's anything sort of immediate that this kind of brings up for you, feel free to give them a call. But then always, yes, get in touch with your GP, get in touch with your friends and look to reach out and get help where you can. But uh, I suppose there's a couple of things that we're trying to do today and we're looking to try and demystify different trauma reactions to help to recognise them in ourselves and others. We want to look at how common trauma reactions are and the implications of not addressing them. We want to explore ways of treating trauma with an optimistic framework. So as you spoke about looking at not just coming through something, but potentially gaining something from that as well. Yes, and in positive psychology, sometimes the term is used post-traumatic growth to convey that. But like you've said in other episodes too, we don't want to trivialise the mental health problems that people might have because many people will be suffering very greatly for a period of time and often with trauma reactions, people also have significant anxiety and significant depressive symptoms. So we may have a little bit of a less of a focus on the character strengths today, but as we say, we do want to have an optimistic framework to everything and, and maybe today's a little bit more of the silver linings than the character strengths. So, look, Dad, just to start things off, what actually is trauma? Well, trauma's a potentially overwhelming event or series of events and typically it involves the threat of death, the prospect of death or serious injury or witnessing someone who is killed or goes through serious injury or also sexual violence. There's some of the ways that we define trauma in terms of post-traumatic stress. But basically it's very overwhelming circumstances where the person might experience that as the bottom falling out of their world. And when people have serious physical injuries in addition to the traumatic experience, then that can have extra implications again. So what's the difference between trauma and grief? Well, there can be an overlap, of course. There can be traumatic grief when people have lost loved ones in, for example, a a criminal act or a bombing or natural disasters as well. But we would tend to look at trauma as being the threat of death or serious injury 
experiencing that or, or near miss or witnessing that, whereas grief we would look at in terms of loss. And of course, trauma and loss can go together and you know, many people will be experiencing that at the moment with the loss of loved ones through COVID-19, especially overseas. Now, trauma is something that can manifest in a whole range of different ways, can't it? And we're going to get into a few of those throughout the podcast today. But what are some of the most common ways that trauma manifests in our behaviours and feelings? Well, one of the things that we'll elaborate on further is post-traumatic stress. And that's one of the more obvious, say, clinical reactions that people can have to trauma. And that's got a few key elements to it. It includes intrusive thoughts about having been attacked or having gone through a traumatic event or a life-threatening event where people might have bad dreams afterwards or intrusive thoughts about what's happened. Then people can experience attempts to avoid reminders of the situation. For example, if someone had a car accident, they might not drive past that particular location again or try and avoid thoughts or reminders about it. For example, turning off the TV or turning away if there are TAC ads that came on, for example, really trying to block out reminders. Then there can be numbing where people find it difficult to experience pleasure from things and have negative thoughts about themselves and the world and and feeling very unsafe in general. And then people can have what we call hyperarousal. So problems with anxiety type symptoms like irritability, problems with concentration and sleep. So they're the common kind of dimensions of post-traumatic stress, but also people will often have problems with anger And that's partly because fight and flight reactions are triggered. Panic attacks, that's the flight or anxiety aspect, can tend to uh, have a degree of social anxiety and withdrawal. Uh, About four times the incidence of people using alcohol and drugs and developing addictions that way, partly to self-medicate for the trauma reactions. And then there are other range of of personality impacts that it can have. So... What's the difference between someone experiencing trauma and PTSD? Because I suppose one thing that I find quite interesting is how you can have a group of people who essentially experience a similar event, but they're affected in a whole range of ways. And is there almost a way that we discern between what's quote unquote a normal level of of sort of almost intrusive thoughts of kind of traumatic feelings that someone's feeling and then what we define as the disordered version of experiencing trauma that way. Yeah look that's a really good question to raise because there are some differences and it's worth highlighting that most people are going to recover from most trauma experiences pretty well. About two-thirds of people after they experience a very significant traumatic event like over a period of months are going to be largely getting back to normal, even if there was a real threat to their life or injury or something like that. But what strikes me is when people develop PTSD or more clinical problems, what you see is that they're left with a trauma memory that can be triggered. So they're left with what can feel like an indelible memory of it might be the car accident or the assault that they've experienced where the person will have pictures pop into their mind unbidden even like flashbacks. As I say, it can be nightmares or bad dreams. Actually, if there's any single symptom indicator of PTSD, it tends to be nightmares. If people have that, then in a sense, more often than not, it's PTSD if that's persisting and and very disruptive. So then the thing about trauma memories as well is they can be triggered. So the person might be watching a movie and not expecting it might have 
for example, uh, someone with a gun in the movie. They thought they were watching uh, might be a romantic comedy and then they see someone with a gun and then they're reminded of a hold-up they're exposed to in a bank or something like that. And, and if the person has an untoward triggered reaction that almost takes them back to the feelings of as if they were back in the original situation, that, that gives the sense that there's this trauma memory there not too far from the surface that can be triggered and when people have those reactions, which they might get pictures pop in their mind, they might get feelings of helplessness or anger or anxiety come to the fore, they might feel like escaping or fleeing from a situation because that memory has been triggered. When people have those extra kind of reactions of a trauma memory being triggered, that to me is an indication that people are often better off seeking therapy. Now, some of that will tend to settle, though, I should say, over a period of months. It's normal for people to have intrusive thoughts for a period of time. And actually, after a trauma, like a car accident, or if people you know, had a serious illness and then recovered from it, then if people have some intrusive thoughts about that for a while, or memories or pictures come to their mind, that's part of our mind's way of actually dealing with it and processing it. It's just if those reactions persist beyond a couple of months, and especially beyond six months or so, because most spontaneous recovery is going to be happening over those initial months and certainly over two years. Once people have gone for more than two years after a traumatic event and they're still getting intrusive thoughts and disruptive reactions and memories being triggered, then that tends to be an indication that there's a trauma memory stuck that the person could do with therapy techniques to help them get through that. And as you mentioned, having a, a bit of a focus on sort of trauma for yourself... I imagine you would have worked with a range of people who experienced a range of traumatic events and, and that would have manifested in a range of different ways. So I suppose one thing I'm interested in is people who experienced trauma for a long time. So like I know you did a lot of work with Vietnam veterans, didn't you? What were some of the things that came out of your work with them that you think really alluded to trauma reactions that, that we can all take something out of? Okay, there are some differences there where people have had the long-term, the chronic trauma reactions. And I might just mention as an aside, where I became interested in that area of long-term chronic trauma, we sometimes call it complex trauma when people have a lot of personality difficulties that go with it. It was working in a psychiatric hospital in Geelong. And after a period of time, along with a number of colleagues, a few of us became much more concerned about the impact of long-term trauma, usually in the form of sexual abuse. We started to twig, you know, it's more around the late 80s, 1990 and so on. We recognised that there were many people admitted to the ward in the psychiatric hospital who experienced sexual abuse that they might not have acknowledged at first. It was only really more when we became more savvy to look for it that we learnt more about that. And so after becoming very interested in that area and some associated problems of long-term trauma, which relate to what we call dissociative disorders, we might come back to that later on, I thought, well, I did want to work with other groups of people who'd experienced trauma significantly. And so then I worked at the Heidelberg Repatriation Hospital with the Vietnam veterans there. And one thing that struck me is in our team meetings... Week after week, there were several people who'd been admitted to the ward who were presented as having anger problems, alcohol problems, depression, anxiety problems, uh, family relationship problems. And what struck me is there wasn't much mention that 
there was another thing that many of these people had in common. They'd been through the Vietnam War. And so this was about, uh, this was, say, 25 years after their war experience, and yet they were in and out of hospital repeatedly with problems with depression, alcohol abuse, family breakdown, that kind of thing. And one thing that struck me and some others at the time is we weren't really talking about a core experience that they had in common, which was trauma. And when we looked to explore that a bit further, and fortunately there were researchers and different clinicians there who were interested in exploring more about trauma, we became more interested in it in the early 90s. And when we actively looked for trauma reactions in terms of PTSD, we found that many of these people who, in a sense, were almost coming into the hospital through a revolving door, many of them continued to have prominent uh, memories that could be triggered about their war experiences. And many of them had the numbing and avoidance of situations that reminded them of war experience and numbed emotions generally. Many of them had the anger problems, the alcohol problems that went with trauma. Many of them showed their reactions could be triggered because when we asked them about their war experiences, including using structured interviews for a search, it was clear that people would not only acknowledge symptoms, but they'd be reacting afterwards by being very distressed and as a result of this a number of us who worked together in the group programs there in the first place we thought let's start up a PTSD program and so the thing that we noticed with the people with the long-term trauma is often it become so entrenched in their personality that they'd become withdrawn and isolated from their family members and distressingly part of this is because they didn't want to contaminate their family members with the kind of impact of their own memories that they still felt plagued by. They tried to keep it to themselves. But the family members were distressed about this withdrawn father and husband and all the rest of who was keeping so much of their hellish experience to themselves. And people knew that they could be very cranky, like their anger could be triggered and they had problems with alcohol. But it was not fully appreciated how much they were using the alcohol to self-medicate partly for these reactions that were ongoing. So then it became clear that even if people had these long-term problems that they'd become, could almost say adapted to, but half the veterans were abusing alcohol, sometimes uh, having you know, more than a dozen stubbies a day, that, that kind of thing just to self-medicate. Once we realised that it was better to help them focus on the underlying trauma reaction themselves, a number of people could improve greatly. But I should also say too, there were many people who had had those problems for about 25 years that in terms of their improvement, well, a third might improve greatly, a third might not improve quite so much at all. And there'd be a third in the middle who'd show improvements in their mood and anger management and ways of relating to others. But once people have had reactions for decades that they've just been used to trying to block out of their mind, then that can be very disruptive and have quite an impact on the people around them because of their anger, their social withdrawal, alcohol problems and all the rest of it. And that's part of the reason why we look to identify trauma early and encourage people to work through it and work on it early. I find it really interesting hearing you describe that because for me, one of the things that I'm most interested in this area are those indirect effects of trauma because I think they do slightly manifest themselves differently for everyone. And And I even noticed with my group of friends uh, when we experienced the, the suicide of, of our close friend that everyone had the collective experience, but it manifested slightly differently for everyone. And 
I almost have this analogy with what I was experiencing at the time and I think it sort of speaks a little bit to what you're talking about there but I particularly felt when I came down to Melbourne and moved away from those people who'd gone through that with me that it was a little bit like you know when you go on a holiday and you come home from the holiday and all you want to talk about is the profound effect that the holidays had on you well it was sort of like that in the sense that there was something there that you know was the big elephant in the room all the time it was all I wanted to talk about all the time but I'd almost felt that every reaction I was going to get was, oh, well, I've never been travelling and, you know, it's COVID at the moment, so we're not going to be able to travel at the moment, so I don't really want to hear about that. And so it's almost like you perceive people, even if they're going to have a sort of spectrum of support in terms of some are going to be more supportive, some are going to be less supportive, but it's almost like you perceive that that will be everyone's reaction. And then that just creates such a distance with the people that you're spending time with because you think, God, how am I going to bridge this gap that is so significant for me, but at the same time to kind of walk someone through all the steps of my experience in that way is just not necessarily practical. So it's almost like you shut off this idea of even having people understand and even having people sort of recognise the degree to which that had an effect on you. And I guess that really just does lead you to sort of labelling yourself as being a little bit damaged in some ways and and it makes it harder to trust your reactions and trust your impulsivity and and I know for me in the years following my friend's death one of the biggest things for me was trusting my impulsivity again because I didn't want to just come across as this sort of you know damaged little fellow all the time and I didn't also want to unacknowledge it at the same time and I guess I just found it really hard to get that balance And if there was anything for me that I suppose was practical coming out of that, it was, all right, let's almost park the event itself to one side. This almost goes a little bit back to what I was saying last week in terms of, you know, you can almost get to a point where you can't think anymore about something and you go, all right, I just need a little positive project to sort of work on. And for me, that was just learning how to trust my impulsivity again. And it sort of gives you something to work on, but... The way that you were describing there, the experience of those veterans and even things with alcohol, it, yeah, it, it really resonated with me because it's something that I experienced and I, I know a, a lot of my friends experienced too, that there's the trauma reaction and there's almost the kind of padding that we build around it. And it's really the padding that we build around it is kind of going to have the greatest effect on our life because everyone kind of goes, look, I know you've been through something quite big here and there, but at the same time, if people don't have a concept of what an event like that actually does to someone, they're not going to realise the degree to which you're still impacted potentially down the line. And so all those extra layers of potentially protection and self-preservation that you've put in for yourself around the traumatic event, they're the, I suppose, for lack of a better term, antisocial habits or they're the habits that you as your healthy self wouldn't necessarily be engaging in as much. So it's almost, for me anyway, as I look back on it, it was almost unpicking some of that kind of indirect layering around the traumatic event in itself, which really made a difference. Yes, and and look, I think one of the things that comes through with your story and your description of that, which you were describing a bit about in the last episode as well, losing a friend to suicide, a core aspect of trauma reactions is the helplessness. Something happens that's so much beyond your control. 
and it can be a natural disaster. It's even worse if it's someone looking to attack us specifically kind of thing, but the helplessness of being unable to prevent something dreadful that has happened. And then when you're mentioning the kind of buffering in different ways or different ways of looking to buffer oneself from the impact, one of the difficulties with that is when people are trying to protect themselves from their reactions that's what we relate to as the kind of avoidance or or numbing where the downside of that is it stops the processing of it further it stops the processing of the emotion so it's natural to look to dampen the pain that goes through with thinking of a traumatic event but that's where you know what we've learned in therapy processes or debriefing processes the idea is to look to identify when people have been through an untoward event or a traumatic event where it's natural where people would feel helpless and early on not necessarily immediately after in the first few days after sometimes people just need the practical support to help manage with a particular situation but soon enough for people to be able to acknowledge and talk about some of their reactions and have someone else interested in how the person's feeling, including their helplessness, including intrusive thoughts, including the difficulties that that, that people are having, because otherwise the reactions can become buried. And with this, when I think of reactions that can become buried, I think even of traditional cultures, how they sometimes would refer to trauma, like in primitive tribes they would refer that the shamans would refer to people's reactions in terms of being possessed by evil spirits and soul loss and when you think of that that overlaps with the dimensions of trauma possessed by evil spirits well that can be nightmares and intrusive thoughts and anxiety reactions and anger and the soul loss can be the numbing and being more socially withdrawn, which is partly the person's attempt to buffer themselves from emotional pain, but also part of it is the reaction of being stuck with the helplessness. And then I think that, as you described in the last episode as well, and what you're partly describing here, when you talk about putting reactions to some one side and then finding like a project, a lot of coming through trauma is people starting to feel some sense of agency again. There's some things that you can do to make a difference. There's some way of taking up a thread in your life, of looking forward or doing something now or applying yourself in some way. And that's where actually resuming routines can be important for people. But also to be able to acknowledge one's experience to someone else and have that witnessed, have that appreciated and understood, that can be powerfully helpful. But even apart from whether other people are going to understand and appreciate, it's also common maybe almost too common, a bit almost too natural for people to also partly protect themselves by not talking about it because it is painful. So that can be like a subtle avoidance symptom sometimes to think that others won't understand or they won't have been through this. But, but, but people might be in a position to at least empathise or listen or whatever. But I, I think often when people are feeling stuck with their reactions, that's where it is important to seek therapy. Well, I think it comes back to that idea of what you alluded to there, it's that idea of control in the sense that when you're in that situation, you feel like you have so little control over things. And I almost wonder if you feel that opening up to people almost puts you in a situation, again, that you're going to have no control over. It's Again, it's almost, you know, I almost think of the term throwing yourself to the wolves a little bit, which... Of course, that's not what it's going to be like. Like many of these people, they're sort of your friends and family that you can certainly expect some, you know, support from. But 
in that situation, it really is almost that you look for every level of control that you can gain and, and maybe not telling people your story and not letting certain emotions come out is a way of seeking that control. And I, I was really interested by what you were talking about there, about the idea of trauma being buried. Because for me, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this as well, in the sense that I think that so much of, well, there's so many issues in society which can almost come back to buried trauma in some ways. And a lot of it's not even necessarily buried. It's sort of trauma reactions that are manifesting. But one thing I'm interested in is the relationship between trauma reactions and personality disorders. Because these are things that are linked, aren't they? And quite often we can have people in society who, you know, they may seem a bit of an antisocial person. They may not be someone that we want to mix with. But quite often it can be an undiagnosed trauma reaction that they're going through or, look, we'll get into this a little bit later on, but even things like intergenerational trauma can have an effect. Yes, I think the impact of trauma on people's mental health is one of the most, still, one of the most under-recognised aspects of factors that impact on people's mental health because so much of mental health research and in psychiatry would emphasise the idea of it comes down to biochemical imbalances, say for depression, and the notion of that's going to relate to your, your genetics and all the rest of it. There's so much emphasis on biology and genes, it tended to under recognise the impact of the environment and the most substantial impact from the environment is trauma. And if we think of the background with this as well, like how come it's only in such recent years that there's been such exposure of the impact of child sexual abuse, including church-related child sexual abuse? Why is it that that didn't come out so much like decades ago? Well, it's partly because it's de-emphasised. The impact of trauma was de-emphasised. And I found that, uh, as I mentioned, working in a psychiatric hospital around 1990, the late 80s, the early 90s, a number of us were very concerned about the impact of trauma, but many of our colleagues were explicitly sceptical about the relevance of trauma. I remember there was a senior psychiatrist in 1990 saying, what's all this about sexual abuse? as though we shouldn't be talking about it. And some of us were thinking, wait a minute, we're just seeing more and more signs of this. And rather than people inventing it or, or seeing abuse or trauma when it wasn't there, it was more that when people have experienced trauma, they're often absolutely keeping it to themselves. And unfortunately, when you mentioned about personality impacts, one of the ways that chronic trauma, such as repeated childhood sexual abuse, one of the ways it can affect people is developing what we call borderline personality characteristics. And borderline personality characteristics are marked by painful emotions, impulsive behaviour, difficulty regulating affect, difficulty establishing stable relationships. So there tends to be more conflict in relationships, sometimes attaching very closely to someone and then afterwards having very disrupted relationships with anger reactions or impulsivity. Now, many people, I would say the majority of people with borderline personality symptoms have experienced significant past trauma, often in the form of, of, of sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse or repeated childhood trauma, sometimes neglect. Now... Not only has a person had the challenge in life of very untoward and difficult experiences to deal with as a child, but if they presented 
to a psychiatric hospital, say in early adult life or in their 30s or whatever, with these problems with anger and impulsive behaviour, often people were treated as though they had a rotten personality. So the essence of borderline reactions is it develops from difficulty dealing with painful emotions and an invalidating environment. Now, the invalidating environment might have been the abusive environment the person encountered in childhood, but then they turn up to a psychiatric hospital and be invalidated all over again, like there's some you know, rotten aspects to their personality. So borderline personality disorder overlaps a lot with chronic trauma, and one of the most worthwhile things that has happened in recent decades in mental health is becoming more aware of the impact of trauma that way. There are also tendency to be avoidant, in personality too, so it could be social anxiety and avoidance. And also, naturally, people will sometimes be a little bit more paranoid, meaning more wary of other people and their motives if people have experienced repeated, especially childhood sexual abuse or physical abuse. Naturally, people will learn to be wary of others. And so what tends to happen with trauma is it tends to affect our view of the world that we no longer view the world as safe or people as trustworthy. If the person's been, say, abused by someone else you know, deliberately, that tends to have an impact different from, say, a natural disaster trauma. If someone's actually abused someone deliberately, then naturally that wariness will be there in the sense of just the world not being safe and the people around you not being trustworthy. And we talk about this idea of trauma almost having an indirect effect as well. And I mentioned intergenerational trauma there because is it something that you see a lot in your clients that they may almost be experiencing trauma reactions without a traumatic event, if that makes sense. And does that relate to this idea of intergenerational trauma? Okay, well, with intergenerational trauma, for example, the adult children of Vietnam veterans would have about four times the incidence of the suicide rate of the general population. Now, that might be a subtle but lingering and significant impact that might not be obvious for any particular and that doesn't mean that every child of people who've had trauma reactions is going to be so negatively affected but that just shows the extra incidence of difficulty or they looked after the holocaust that children of people who'd been in concentration camps for example had increased incidence of mental health problems. But to me, it was more subtle noticing that in a clinical situation. Like over the years, there became about, like say, six, eight, ten people I'd seen where I was convinced that they must have had some past trauma. And I'd be asking them about uh, potential abuse. I'd be asking them about physical abuse, whether they might have been in an accident. I just couldn't really quite figure out it just seemed such trauma reactions but you couldn't put your finger on any trauma and it seemed that they were raised in a relatively safe environment and all the rest of it and then I started asking people about their parents experiences and then it was striking how often in those situations which often showed up as a person having intermittent depression They'd have bouts of depression that would come out of the blue. There's almost no explanation for them. And sometimes that can happen with, say, a trauma background. But they didn't have the trauma background. But then when you asked about their parents, then a couple had parents who were war veterans. Another one had a a parent who was a policeman in the Middle East and many of his friends were blown up with bombs. There was someone else whose uh, mother had been severely sexually abused in childhood and then started to notice and twig that there could be that impact. The other thing I'll mention that struck me is with this second generational trauma, often it seemed to be quite sensitive 
resourceful people, often people who were very achieving in their work and they related quite well to family members, but they just had these very dark moods that came out of the blue. And I think part of what was happening is these sensitive, empathic individuals in childhood were tapping into their parents' unexpressed affect. The parent was maybe looking to you know, hide or buffer themselves from the impact of their own trauma, so they'd keep a lot of their reactions to themselves. They might be withdrawn, they might have intermittent anger or something like that. They might be using alcohol or drugs in different ways, but it's like these sensitive children picked up some of this unexpressed affect that then had an impact on them. And so part of it, sometimes I saw people for the first time in their 50s who'd had this lifelong pattern of reactions out of the blue and in those situations didn't expect people to, in a sense, get rid of those reactions altogether. But when people can understand when their painful reactions link up to trauma in some ways, that's often a great relief because the person realises it's not to do with having a rotten personality. These are some of the understandable lingering ripple effects of trauma. I was watching something recently on Netflix, as you do in ISO, and uh, it was on the uh, the Unabomber, who is a criminal in America, and this guy, Ted Gazinski, his name was, and he eventually became very withdrawn from society, and I believe he was involved in a CIA program, which ended up kind of being about mind control and all this sort of stuff. But one thing from his early life, apparently, was... There was a stage where he was taken away from his parents and he was left essentially by himself for two weeks. And his parents and family always said he never came back the same. He was never the same child after that. I think he was, you know, very young at this stage. So he would have been in a situation where he would not necessarily have remembered that experience. But according to his parents, that traumatised him throughout life. Is this something that you also see where people will have a traumatic reaction to an event they may not even remember? Yes, and there are a number of people that seem to have powerfully painful affect, different emotions or feelings that seem to come out of the blue and might have somewhat disruptive uh, relationships where they find it hard to get very close to other people in certain ways and sometimes you can't help but infer that people likely had real complications in their childhood attachment. And so sometimes you find that a, a parent had a lot of problems with, say, violent anger or otherwise a parent might have been very detached and going through a severe depression when someone was an infant, not looking to judge necessarily parents in this way. But there'd be times when you get a sense that someone had a, a very compromised or a lot of conflict or difficult emotions in their infancy. And that's where actually sometimes emotional abuse or neglect can have an even greater impact than say you know physical trauma, uh, physical abuse kind of trauma because it, it can be almost more sinister in, in its impact. But there'd be some people you get a sense that they'd almost regress into an infantile state. Actually, sometimes you'd see clients would actually drop to the floor and uh, like turn into a tortoise put their hair over their head and curl up in a ball on the floor. And in those kind of situations, you just get the feeling the person was feeling so vulnerable and under attack and, and uh, under threat. And in those situations, you tend to infer that someone likely had experiences in the past that led them to feel so much a threat like that. But they couldn't always put it into words. Sometimes you would hear from a family member about 
abuse that they were exposed to, the person would not always remember that. And this became a problem in psychiatry because there was an emphasis at one stage on false memories. And to some extent, there still is. And it's true that it can be a problem if a therapist is over-eager to read in, say, past sexual abuse into a situation. And the notion of false memory syndrome was that there was a naive and over-eager therapist trying to look for past trauma in terms of abuse and then kind of almost suggesting to the person it was there and almost putting the idea in their head. And even around the year 2000, one of the biggest issues at the time was false memory syndrome and how these naive therapists were creating these false memories of trauma There wasn't anywhere near as much emphasis at the time on what about all the unrecognised abuse, including where was the emphasis then on church-related institutional sexual abuse, which had occurred decades earlier. And I can't help but think, to some extent, there are attempts to cover up abuse in different ways. And it was just too awkward to talk about. Actually, just briefly, I'll go back to the... In the 1960s, the main psychiatric textbook used in Australia estimated the incidence of incest is one in a million. At that stage, they reckon there would have been, what, about a dozen people in Australia who'd experienced incest. Now, that's frightening now when we look back and we think of the, like like a couple of generations of people, you know, beyond that time who would have been exposed to abuse. Now with the Me Too movement and much more awareness of trauma and following the Vietnam War and the establishment of rape crisis centres, there was more awareness of trauma. But even then, there's a lot of pushback with things like false memory syndrome. And so, yeah, look, I think that's what's made a big difference these days. There's much more awareness that there is, sadly, abuse and trauma that can happen in very very early years. A number of kids are going to be neglected and people aren't going to remember things from the first few years of life because our left hemisphere is not so developed. Actually, people can still have memories of emotions because they're attached more with the right hemisphere that develops earlier on, but have no narrative memory of what these feelings of helplessness or threat or fear attach to, which you know, the, the memory of actual abuse comes after at least a few years of age when the left hemisphere is developed further. So a number of people do have feelings, threatened feelings, fearful feelings, helpless feelings that can be triggered that probably relate back to actual experience but that they don't remember. Jeez, it really is a bit scary to think, isn't it, when you think of the prevalence that trauma and trauma reactions potentially do have when it was so minimised for so long. I think back to that gentleman that you mentioned last week on the podcast who was in his 70s and is going to see a psychologist for the first time. You sort of think throughout his life, say he experienced trauma early on, how many dead ends, for lack of a better term, would he have come up against when looking for support, when reactions to trauma were so underemphasized and I think of one example which is something that we've spoken a little bit almost you know it was one thing I found quite interesting as a kid but the idea of multiple personality disorder which you know for so long it was almost seen as something that was just people a bit crazy and they're just put in this kind of basket of crazy but that's something that's actually is is it dissociative disorder that that's more linked to but there's I suppose trauma foundations in stuff like multiple personality disorder as well isn't there Yes. Now, multiple personality disorder, as it used to be known, or now it's referred to as dissociative identity disorder, 
to me is just such a fascinating thing in terms of how the the mind works and all the rest of it because it's to do with the person having the experience within themselves that at one point in time it's as though they're quite a different person to another point in time. So the term used to be used about the person having a number of alters And I've seen a number of people with dissociative identity disorder, including one woman in her 30s, and I was having a conversation with her, and she had like this strange smile on her face. And I asked her after a while, I asked her, can I ask, why are you smiling? And she referred to this 14-year-old boy in her, just say the 14-year-old boy is called Jim, for example, and she said, oh, Jim's really enjoying listening to you because he doesn't have much contact with other older males. And it was just like a a freaky experience in certain kind of ways and and you wouldn't encounter it much because people would tend to hide this aspect of their functioning. People would know that to others it might seem weird so they'd hide this multiplicity in themselves but when they did research they found that it was about 4% of hospital inpatients around the world would have this dissociative identity disorder condition. Now I became very fascinated that in the from 1990 onwards when I encountered the first case that colleagues were were working with but at that time and before and quite some time after a lot of people just discredited any possibility of that being true and that's where the idea of false memory syndrome was largely coming up around multiple personality disorder people saying that the therapists were sucked in and just imagining this and suggesting to people that they had past abuse and different personalities because they were naive but if you really looked into it many of these individuals had just really kept it to themselves and hidden it but from like say 20 years earlier they had a sense of different characters in themselves with different names but yes dissociative conditions have at their core a number of like hypnotic like phenomena including amnesia People have blank spells for things that have happened before. It might be things that happened that morning, but it also could be things that happened in their childhood, chunks of missing time. People can have a feeling of what we call derealization, as though the world around them isn't real, or depersonalization. For example, looking in a mirror and finding it hard to recognize themselves or standing outside themselves and looking on as though they're looking at another person. Now, how dissociation develops is it's a way of buffering oneself from pain. Well, well it's got two elements to it. One element is, is just being so overwhelmed that the person has lost their usual frontal lobe functioning, their frontal lobe switch off so they're not laying down memories so well. But there's also a way that the person can, for example, imagine that there's a character in themselves that carries the pain And then when they move back to their usual selves, so to speak, then they don't feel that pain. It's like there's another character that feels the pain for them and then they sort of split themselves off from that character. And so the person might have this sense, they might even hear crying in their mind and it's like these child alter characters that have been there since, say, they were eight years old and carrying certain aspects of a trauma experience when they might have been experiencing at the time for example, sexual abuse, flying around the ceiling, being outside their body. Now, we actually might talk about dissociative conditions and dissociative disorders in a future episode because it's more prevalent than people are aware of. And about 15% of people who access outpatient services in a psychiatric hospital would have prominent dissociative symptoms. And what I find is with about half the war veterans 
had prominent dissociative symptoms. About half the people with significant trauma reactions have some kind of dissociative symptoms, especially for chronic trauma. And I think it's important that we look for and check for those kind of reactions because it's a different way of the mind's way of trying to buffer from trauma. But what it means is people have some extra complications with their sense of identity, with their ways of managing emotions, with their feelings of stability in their everyday life. There are extra complications that come with dissociation. And um, and again, this is one of those areas where a lot of people tended to be dismissed as making things up or because they often had borderline personality traits as well. It's as though they just had a difficult personality or whatever. It's when we have a more enlightened view of trauma, understanding the reactions that many people have to chronic trauma, or what we call complex trauma, like repeated childhood sexual abuse. When we understand those reactions more, then there's less judgment and people feel great benefit from recognising they're not the only ones who have those kind of reactions. And with things like dissociative disorder and borderline personality disorder, I imagine it's a bit of a spectrum in the sense that everyone to a degree who experiences trauma would experience some of these feelings, but is it almost as if there's a threshold that you get to that we consider that disordered? Or is it... I suppose, is is there a level at which we can really discern that someone, I suppose, can be diagnosed with someone like that as opposed to just experiencing whether it be some sort of, you know, feelings of, of detached reality, which I imagine are quite natural with a traumatic event because your understanding of reality didn't really conceptualize you didn't have the mental infrastructure to be able to understand the event that you've just gone through before you went through it. Yes, so when we look at what we might call normal or very understandable reactions to trauma and then more complicated reactions that we would diagnose as whether it be PTSD or dissociative disorder, it's partly a difference of intensity or frequency of symptoms, but it's also partly a difference in quality or the nature of the symptoms. So in terms of the intensity, when we diagnose PTSD, for example, we're partly looking at How frequently do people have intrusive thoughts or pictures about, say, a previous car accident or assault? And if someone only had a reaction like once every couple of months and it was only for a few minutes that they felt uncomfortable and their level of distress was like a a 5 out of 10 and it settled soon after, that would be neither here nor there. But if a person, for example, has those intrusive thoughts or images at least once a week and they have, like, say, a nightmare at least once a month, and certain kind of reactions, that it's partly the frequency and the intensity, like they have certain level of problem with their concentration rather than just sort of being mildly distracted, a little bit more distractible than usual. It's actually interfering with their daily activities on a regular basis. You know, that's when you get more intensity and frequency of symptoms. But when we talk about dissociative disorders, it's also a qualitative difference. Like most people don't have the experience of standing outside themselves and looking on as though they're another person. Most people don't have the experience of looking in a mirror and finding that they can barely recognise the person in the mirror. And sometimes you pick up as a clinician some patterns that you think suggest that a person might have a more prominent dissociative condition that they're maybe hiding or keeping to themselves, but you want the person to feel that they can acknowledge it without too much shame. And I can remember asking one lady, and this is a common question I would ask to pick up dissociative symptoms, I asked her, can I ask you, do you have periods of missing time? Because a number of people do. And she looked at me and she said, yes, 
How I know I've been to the supermarket is I open up the boot and I've got groceries in the boot. Now that's qualitatively really different to people's usual experience. And I was surprised. I thought she might have some dissociative symptoms, but I was surprised about the degree of it. And it's often only by asking people in a way that gives them permission that they will acknowledge the degree to which they might even experience themselves as like a different person at times. They might have different names for different aspects of themselves. Like one fellow told me once about a Mr Grumpy he had inside of him, but like this Mr Grumpy was very aggressively attacking towards him and led him to have prominent suicidal thoughts. So when you look at the quality of the reaction the person has, that can sometimes be of another order again. So sometimes it's a more subtle kind of condition. And again, if we're like a bit more irritable and some extra problems with concentration, our sleep's affected a bit or whatever, that can be all part of the normal recovery after trauma. And many people will have reactions like that over six to eight weeks and intrusive thoughts and trying to block it out a bit. And much will tend to resolve over a period of a couple of months. But when it goes on beyond a couple of months with the frequency being quite disruptive to people's everyday lives, and then when you get these extra reactions that might come in like amnesia or depersonalization or whatever, that's when we would tend to add other diagnoses to someone's trauma reactions. As you speak about that almost detachment from reality and different set of experiences and different set of perceptions people have on the world it leads me to I suppose wonder a little bit more about something that I've just always kind of struggled to get my head around with trauma and that's that particularly we look at sexual abuse for example one thing I've never been able to work out is why people who've been through trauma are more likely to commit an act that causes trauma to someone else. So like you think of the church, for example, and they had an almost institutionalised level of sexual abuse. And I really wouldn't be surprised if many of the offenders, many of the priests who did abuse young boys, I really wouldn't be surprised at all if they had experiences of sexual abuse in their childhood. So why is it that... We almost don't think, God, this is absolutely awful. I I could never do this to someone else. Well, actually, one of the uplifting things is usually people do have the reaction of thinking, I would never do this to anyone else. And what I would say is the majority of people I've seen have experienced significant abuse have a kind of mission in life they've taken on. They might not recognise or explicitly say they've got this mission, but what they're on about is turning things around in a generation. Most clients I've seen, for example, have experienced prominent childhood sexual abuse or physical abuse or neglect in raising their children. They're really committed to look to see that their children have a much more healthy and safe life than they had themselves. And, and this is even in situations where people have chronic trauma reactions or dissociative reactions or whatever. You can see that people are, are really interested and committed in that way. And the other thing I, I should say as well is the vast majority of people who are abused, including sexually abused, do not go on to abuse other people. But I think there's a, a small proportion of people who might commit terrible crimes on someone else, including sexual abuse, where they have experienced abuse themselves. And and so when people have this terrible pattern of sexually abusing others, often they've had what we call conduct disorders in childhood. 
They might, for example, tease animals or break objects or you know, um, uh, show problems with anger or truanting from school, these kind of disruptive behaviours early. A lot of people who engage in the most heinous kind of abuse often show these conduct problems in childhood and would have a higher incidence of having been abused themselves. And I think what sometimes happens in that small proportion of cases, I think what sometimes happens is the person's re-engaging with the original situation of abuse, but this time they're in the position of being the controller. Rather than them being the victim and having something happen to them, this is this disturbed subgroup of people, they go back to that original situation, but now they're the one doing the action or harm to someone else. And I think that's sometimes like a, almost like a magical way the person trying to change things in their mind of their own experience so they feel more in control. But I think, the, for example, the church-related sexual abuse or just say with the Me Too movement, what we find that many, for example, men in positions of power and all the rest of it who've engaged in sexual harassment of others, I think that's almost like a subcultural kind of thing. Like with the institutional church-related abuse, there was a lot of turning a blind eye to certain kind of behaviours where there are a number of people in subcultures who, for whatever reason and with whatever twisted thinking were telling themselves that was okay to act in certain ways and collectively they'd have a subculture where they'd be saying that's okay and they'd be covering up for each other and things like that. That's a particularly sinister aspect. And I suppose more broadly we could say with the Me Too movement, maybe also many... Or would it be prominent um, movie moguls or whatever would have been in position where they could exploit particularly uh, young women in certain kind of ways. And so I think they're those cultural patterns that happen that, uh, well, there's a lot of change happening at the moment, I think, with the Me Too movement, people speaking up. And this is one of the main things about abuse too. With children who've been in high-risk situations, the children are guided and supported to be able to speak up, learning about good touch and bad touch. That's happened more in the last generation or two. Children being taught it's not okay for someone to touch you in certain ways. And I think the Me Too movement's important as well in sort of shifting the culture in terms of where the goalposts are and being clear about some things that are not acceptable. I think that will lead to more change in these areas. Yeah, and I, look, I do just want to clarify, I certainly don't want to <laughs> sort of make out that uh, that everyone sort of in the church was involving themselves in those sort of behaviours. But I think what you talk about there, about that idea of asserting control over a situation, I think that is relevant just in how prevalent it was. And I have to think of, is it Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold? They were the Columbine shooters. And they were almost people who saw themselves as outsiders and isolated. And if you look at that act, it was the ultimate act of kind of isolation. And it's almost like in, in such a horrible, sinister way, they were kind of reclaiming potentially the, the bullying that they would have gone through. I, I think that's a really important example. And, and we learned something in Victoria through a tragic situation, the, the Queen Street shootings, which I think were around about the late 70s, uh, sorry, no, would have been more like the mid-80s, I think. But with, with the Queen Street shootings, there was the fellow Frank Vitkovic who left a, a suicide note. And basically he was saying, look out for those people who are alienated from society, who have a passion with guns. And our community's done a lot for gun control. 
But I think we could do more for people who are alienated from society. Like you mentioned, those Columbine killers. Now, often there's been a pattern of bullying where people don't have the social skills, they're not so well engaged with others, they develop a very jaundiced, negative, angry view of the world. Now, partly what's happening there is people aren't so well engaged with other people. And I think that this is a shared responsibility. It's not just the individual who we can just dismiss as a psychopath. What about the community around those people? What are we doing to look to include or engage people who are a little bit different or seem a bit weird or aren't as easy to engage with at first? I think one of the messages for society is looking to be inclusive, looking to see that people feel they belong. If people act in a troubled way, first of all, might there be some kind of reason behind that? People might have experienced harsh experiences before and found it harder to trust others. So I think that that was one of the messages from Frank Vitkovic and some of these other situations that tends to be underemphasised, the importance of engaging and linking in people who are living on the margins of society. Well, I suppose that really gets back to what we are really trying to talk about today in the sense that the more we recognise this sort of stuff as trauma, the more that we can account for it as something that potentially people go through, but it's not as if people permanently are that way. And the more we offer support, the more we are potentially able to give people positive solutions to the problems that they're giving. So I think that really does get to the heart of what we want today's podcast to be about. But look, Dad, one thing I'm I'm interested in getting your take on because What you said earlier about that idea of numbness really resonated with me and look, it was something that I actually found really hard to connect with the emotion of certain events for a really long time and for me, music was almost something that I used that I was then able to connect with, whether it be certain songs where they reminded me of of periods in my life and that sort of thing and I'd be in situations where I'd almost had this absolute flood of emotion come over me that I'd not been able to feel for so long and I'd been yearning for the opportunity to connect with that emotion again. And it was only when I was in that situation that it was almost like I suppose I was triggered to go back to to what we were talking about a little bit earlier. But how is it that when we have such a layer of numbness, when we're potentially not even able to apprehend for ourselves the degree to which trauma is having an effect on us and exactly where it is having an effect, how do we get in touch with the trauma? How do we connect with the traumatic event in a way that's actually going to address it? And it's not these, I suppose, extraneous layers that we've built up for ourselves. We really want to get to the heart of the problem. What are some ways that we can really nail that down? Okay, well, look, if I can respond to that by referring to psychological therapy and and different treatments for trauma, because basically the psychological treatments are looking to address that very issue that you're describing. How do we help people connect with their experience and process it further? And there are a number of elements of therapy that we find make a difference for people to connect more with themselves and the impact of trauma and work through it. Part of it is what we call psychoeducation. So this is along the lines of the things that we're talking about now. It's having an understanding of trauma reactions. What are the common reactions? And how it's understandable that the person might have developed these reactions of laying down a trauma memory. And we talk about how this would help evolution, that if we have a near-death experience, we want to remember that one experience forever. 
because that can keep us alive. You know, the first time you come across a lion, you don't want to think it's a pussycat kind of thing. By evolution, if you have a near-death experience or you're potentially seriously injured, we want to learn that. But it, it means that trauma memories tend to have a somewhat more indelible kind of quality than other kind of memories. And that's where they can be more embedded and then they can be triggered. So if we talk about the different nature of trauma memories, that these memories of an original experience, that if they're triggered, it can be like going back to that original experience. And unfortunately, that mechanism of remembering the danger works too well. It's like a more indelible memory. But if people then have an understanding of trauma memories and how they work, that basically what that means is we've got this underlying memory that's still there, not far under the surface, And it can be triggered by seeing something that reminds us of the original situation, feeling something similar to the original situation. So later on, we might be feeling very helpless in a work situation and someone starts having nightmares of a near drowning incident many years earlier when they felt helpless then. So having some emotion can trigger a memory from earlier on, a trauma memory where we had that similar emotion. And also our view of the world can be affected so if we feel unsafe in a particular situation it can sort of trigger this general feeling about the world not being a safe place so when people understand about trauma memories that can help and look I will mention that I'm sure with this podcast we'll post a link to some of the resources we use at our practice some handouts that we give people to show them to help understand the nature of trauma memories so psychoeducation is part of it then now this is the tough part often for having the most effective therapy and recovery from trauma especially if people have had trauma memories lingering for quite some time either lingering severely beyond at least a period of a couple of months and sometimes you know it's it's years later often you have to activate the trauma memory to diffuse it the therapy techniques that we use often have an exposure element and what that means exposure exposure to the feared memory So we actually have therapy techniques which deliberately induce the memory and bring it to the surface. And that's really difficult because people feel just about as bad as when they're in their original situation. So we might get the person to relive a car accident or relive an experience of abuse, which as you can imagine is pretty tough to do because it brings up the feelings of helplessness and anxiety and fear and feeling unsafe. But we have different methods in a therapy situation to help the person feel a little bit more assured and feel a bit more safe, including spelling out what these methods are. And we often do them over a period of two or three weeks of more intensive therapy. And then after that, then the therapy involves helping the person reconnect, reconnect with different things from the past, including you mentioned music that people relate to or reconnect with routines or job roles or restore friendships. And so there's actually three stages of therapy that we would describe for trauma. The three stages include establishing a sense of safety and trust That's the person developing a sense of trust in the therapist as well as trust in themselves to be able to go through the gruelling experience of reliving past memories. Then there's remembrance and mourning. So the remembrance, like that exposure kind of technique, reliving a past experience and then over two or three sessions often of around about an hour of reliving experience, often it takes the heat out of trauma memories it helps defuse them it helps the person take more distance from them and it seems strange but actually sometimes you actually have to activate the memory and make it hot again you can't just sort of 
rationalise to yourself in your mind that it, it won't bother you. When people have, for example, post-traumatic stress, often they do have to relive the experience, activate the memory. And then with going through it, the exposure, the remembrance, there's also often mourning afterwards, acknowledging the losses that the person's gone through with their trauma reactions. Then reconnection. That can be the person reconnecting with themselves, reconnecting with other people, reconnecting with their joy of music, reconnecting with being able to visit places that they used to avoid because they reminded them of the trauma. And that reconnection helps people feel more whole again. So, uh, yeah, the psychoeducation, strategies for managing with anxiety or arousal because the therapy itself will bring up anxiety and distress. Then the remembrance and mourning, and the reconnection, there's some of the core elements of therapy for trauma reactions. Well, I find it quite interesting that out of all the content that we've put out here at the practice, there's a video from Destination Happiness, actually, that you did with Angie Hilton, the presenter, where essentially you go through just this, this idea of exposure therapy, where she had some uncomfortability driving on the Great Ocean Road. And, and you can see in that video the sort of process that she goes through. And you can sort of see she's quite overcome at one stage by the intensity of, of the emotions that she's feeling. But you can see by the end of that video that in connecting with that intensity, it really helped her to process it a lot more. So, look, there's one thing that I really remember that I'd really like to get your thoughts on here too, but if there's one thing from psychology as a field that I think is the number one thing, it is this thing of EMDR. And it can be used to diffuse some of the intensity of those traumatic memories, can't it? And it can be used in exposure therapy, but... What is EMDR and how on earth does that magic work? <laughs> okay, it is, is remarkable. It's the one therapy approach that to me is, it's almost like dental surgery. Painful, but it gets the gunk out. It's a therapy technique which supports this exposure process of people reliving memories, but it helps people shift their perspective of the memory and their experience of it. And so EMDR is a, is a pretty weird technique because it involves what we call bilateral stimulation, which means stimulating one side of the brain and then the other whilst having a distressing event in mind. And so we have the person, in a sense, go back to a picture of the original traumatic experience. And while they do that, we then use some kind of bilateral stimulation, usually by the therapist waving their fingers back and forth in front of someone's eyes about a metre away so the person looks right, left, right, left, right, left for about, say, half a minute or so whilst having a distressing picture in mind. And we do this over, like, say, 20 or 30 different times, uh, 20 or so different times in a session, maybe going for about 40 minutes. And what happens while the person has an image and then they move their eyes back and forth or maybe have their hands tapped back and forth or sometimes it can be used using hearing clicks back and forth, one ear than the other. This bilateral stimulation seems to both induce a more vivid kind of memory as well as help reduce arousal. So initially, the early stage of an EMDR session, the person starts off with a trauma memory, it tends to get more intense for a period of time. It feels very vivid. The person says, look, this is amazing. I felt like I was right back there. But then, like say, even unbidden, the person's negative thoughts and feelings start to shift. 
and more positive kind of thoughts come into it or a different kind of way of looking at it or a different resource or they feel their distress comes down a bit or they remember something good that happened at the time that helped rescue them, for example. So EMDR is a technique that, look, you could say from a researcher it works no better or no worse than some other well-established exposure therapy techniques. Like there are techniques in cognitive behavioural therapy and some other areas which on average would seem to be as effective as EMDR. But certainly in this practice, it's one of our favoured go-to ways of initiating trauma therapy. And um, and I think that any therapy practice that specialises in trauma as ours does, we ought to have at least two different methods that involve exposure to trauma. But we do tend to use EMDR because very commonly within three sessions, not only does it help take the heat out of the trauma memory through the exposure process, but also what we've found from research, which we've presented at conferences, is that people's level of anxiety and depression tends to roughly halve across those EMDR sessions. And if we see people, for example, for 12 sessions of treatment for an individual trauma experience that they had, it might be being a victim of crime or a car accident or something like that, we find they go through as much improvement across the EMDR sessions as they do for the rest of the treatment overall. So, yeah, it is quite remarkable. But the uplifting story is there are ways, there are therapy techniques that can help a person manage with the challenge of reliving a past trauma in a way that helps take the heat out of the trauma-related emotions. Well, I remember, for me, when I used EMDR, it was almost like I had that idea of being so numb about things, so stuck, not able to connect with that emotion, that I was then able to spit out a chronology of the morning of, of sort of when everything happened, and I was able to connect with details that I thought that I'd forgotten And it completely almost demystified the event again. So it doesn't become this kind of, I suppose, intangible black cloud, for lack of a better term, that's sort of kind of sitting over you. And and I just remember going through the process. Now, we'll just go into it briefly because it's it's so fascinating to me how it works. I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to understand it. But as I was sort of thinking about things, going through the sort of process of the hand movements, these intangible feelings and emotions that I had in my head almost crystallized and materialized into this face. And it was almost this demonic face. But to me, this face represented some of these emotions that I was feeling, some of what I was going through. And and as I went through more and more sort of cycles of this ENDR, this face sort of became more and more kind of grotesque and ridiculous. And it ended up almost being a cartoon caricature of itself of what I initially considered to be my perception of all of my negative feelings and everything. And all of a sudden, it had just become this kind of big cartoon kind of mess that was intimidating in no way at all. And it was just the journey that I almost went through in terms of just that, like it was a period of about five minutes, but from being so stuck for so many months to then have such a change in that situation. I, I really found it quite profound, I suppose. And, you know, it's I'll, I'll chew anyone's ear off who sort of, you know, he'll listen who potentially would gain some benefit from EMDR because I just think it's such an incredible tool because, yeah, for whatever reason, we don't necessarily have to do anything other than engaging in the eye movements, but it just seems to unlock so much for you. 
Well, look, that's fascinating to hear of that experience, and I've not heard you describe it in that detail at all, but there are a number of elements that are very important in that. One of the things is your your story shows that with trauma memories and trauma reactions, we're affected not so much by an event itself, but by how we remember it. And what you're describing is when you went through that EMDR process, it allowed you to have a different level of detachment about your reactions. And then you were processing the memory differently. So you were perceiving your reactions around the event and around what you associated to the event. Like this this face became something else. Now, the, the face wasn't part of the original event, but it was an embellishment that had developed that symbolised something about your emotional reactions and something in your mind at the time. Now, for you to have been able to take that distance and then see something which was almost like a demonic face and then it transforms into like a cartoon, like it just defuses the threat in such a vivid kind of way. That's a a remarkable description of how a therapy process or an experience can transform not what happened itself, but how we process it, how we remember it, what associations we have for it. And this is the uplifting story of trauma reactions because sometimes people come in as a client and they think, I can never change how I feel about this event because I can't change the event. I lost someone very close to me or I was nearly killed or I lost my leg in this situation, now I can't do this, that and the other. But the person doesn't need to change the original event, which of course we can't. The key is changing the way we remember it and think about it and construe it and what associations we give to it and that we can change any particular point in time. In fact, we can't not change that. Our views of past things are continuing to evolve. We might forget that sometimes how we remember something is not what happened itself but how we last remembered it. And so our memories can become like a well-worn groove that we could be stuck with because we keep on remembering things a certain way and we think that's what's happened that we can't change but it's how we're remembering it that's stuck and so what you're describing is a remarkable way of becoming unstuck with that and taking the heat out of it so that's a very elegant description that you gave of of like a remarkable process well to me the more that we are able to recognize exactly what you've just said there the more we're able to almost claim agency over it which again, helps with this whole idea of, I suppose, avoiding some of the more disordered ways of, of experiencing trauma. But look, and I, I don't want to sort of get into this too much, Dad, because I recognise that people going through trauma, you know, something like the character strengths isn't necessarily going to be front of mind. And we don't even necessarily want to falsely elevate the character strengths beyond what they really should be in this situation. Because, look, the character strengths are absolutely something that can help in the process of recovering from trauma and processing trauma and using trauma as a learning tool and something that you can come through as a more fully formed version of yourself. But I suppose in treating trauma, the character strengths maybe don't quite hit the mark compared to some of these more general psychological principles that we've spoken about. Yes, and I think what we're talking about is partly the difference between positive psychology generally and positive psychotherapy. Positive psychotherapy is where we take elements of positive psychology like a three blessings exercise, like self-compassion, like looking at the character strengths, 
but we incorporate that with traditional therapy techniques which are tried and true. For example, some of the trauma therapy and exposure techniques we were talking about before. But where I find the character strengths could be really worthwhile with someone who's experienced trauma reactions is... Well, there are a number of ways. One is after helping people recover from their trauma memories or go through a lot of improvement in their trauma reactions at a later stage of therapy, we tend to introduce character strengths, which are very worthwhile for there's an uplifting quality to it, looking at the best in ourselves. It's also good for relapse prevention. You know, the character strengths, as we've talked about in recent episodes, very good for looking at activities that give us a sense of achievement or pleasure, where we tend to be performing at our best. But one of the things that's relevant with character strengths is that people sometimes feel they've lost themselves when they've gone through a traumatic event. They feel they're not the same person and might never become the same person again. And it can be relevant if people then do their character strengths and then it comes out that, well, that's how they used to remember themselves before the trauma as being very creative or honest or kind or showing humility or, or uh, showing gratitude. And when people realise that these strengths are still coming to the fore when they're doing a questionnaire, but that was only after they've been through the trauma, sometimes it helps people at least connect up more with the idea that maybe they haven't lost themselves so fully. Maybe a lot of what's good in them is still there, even if it's harder to connect with it. One thing that comes to mind there is something that I heard on another podcast I did once, and it was someone who worked in the sports field with, and they worked with retiring athletes. And one of the things that they worked with was this concept of identity. And look, I think trauma is something that really robs you of your identity in many ways, but He spoke about this idea that instead of identity being this almost linear, black and white, single thing, it's actually more like the roots of a tree and that he was talking about it in the context of sports people. So for them, they felt like they may have had one root embedded into the ground, which was their sporting careers. But what he was helping them to do was recognise the different roots that they had in the ground being the different elements of their identity. So I wonder in this situation whether an understanding of our character strengths profile and some understanding of how we work within that maybe help us to broaden our identity. They help us to develop a stronger idea of what that identity is once we've integrated some of the traumatic events that we've experienced. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And generally, a a healthy view of ourselves of the world is usually a little bit more differentiated, embellished, developed view of ourselves in the world. We have many different sides of ourselves and different aspects to our experience. And the fuller a picture we have of ourselves and our life in the world, in many ways, that's better. So when you mention the number of roots that are there, that makes perfect sense that someone who's a top athlete, if they only related to that part of themselves and where they got all the acclamation and where they got the um, income and the status and all the rest of it, well, what if they become severely injured? And actually, some of the most severely depressed and suicidal people I've seen are elite sports people, for example, footballers, who were injured and could no longer exercise that aspect of themselves that they related to so strongly. So that was maybe too many eggs in in one basket. But yeah, acknowledging the different sides to us is helpful. Acknowledging the different sides of our life is helpful. And um, look, I think this often happens after people have been through 
trauma reactions and when there's been that time to process things Sometimes without therapy, people make a, a very full recovery and they might unfold over a, a year or two or longer even then. But people can then reflect on themselves and their lives often in a fuller way, often with that sense of post-traumatic growth, having gained something from the experience, having learnt about vulnerability, maybe having learnt different ways of having to draw on the support of other people, maybe having had to learn to adapt their expectations in different ways. But uh, you know, one thing I will say is that many people, when they come through trauma, and this is an uplifting thing, they reach a point where if they could, say, press a button to magically go back to the time just before the trauma occurred, I would say just over half the clients I've seen, just over half the ones who've worked on trauma reactions in therapy, just over half of them would not press that button because they've come to a point of accepting themselves how they are and the different aspects of themselves. That includes the hurt and loss they've been through and all the rest of it. But they accept themselves how they are and they want to be themselves. They realise that if they took themselves back to a time before that trauma, if they pressed that button back to then, they would no longer be the same person they are now. But they choose to be. They want to be the person they are now because there are many good things with that and there's extra learning and development and, and depth in their personality. So, well, you know, as we talked about last time, part of life is around trauma and loss. There's a tragic view of life is, is all of us are going to die. Those closer to us are going to die. There is trauma. There are enough tragic things that happen in life. However, there are things that make it worthwhile and that includes the learning that we go through as we process the challenges that we have in life. Yeah, and look, I guess I almost say it like this in the sense that that's something that I really relate to a lot and it's quite hard for me in some ways to sort of hear that and kind of almost wonder about it a little bit because look, to be honest, I'd, I'd obviously do anything to sort of get my mate back who passed away but I almost think of it in terms of everything happens for a reason and not necessarily in the sense that my mate had to pass away and that was the only outcome that could have happened for the world to go on but more in the sense that you know when I'm sitting around a campfire at 50 years old or whatever I want to be able to look back at things and think okay this you know led to this learning which led to this growth which led to this which led to that you can see how they're all sort of connected in that way. Whereas I think if you view trauma as almost this external force that kind of comes in, I suppose this gets to the idea of what we're talking about today with the idea of transcending trauma. It's, it's not about getting over it. It's actually about integrating it as part of your personality, recognize that you've experienced something and there's actually a whole range of benefits that come out of experiencing something like that. So yeah, I, I completely agree with what you're saying and I think it is so hard to do at the time but the more that we can recognise the trauma reactions within ourselves, the more we can almost get to the heart of what's causing them, integrate those into our personality and that's just going to help us A, be more developed as people, as individuals but also be able to relate to and connect with many more people who may have experienced things. So yeah, I guess... If there's one thing that I'd almost want to finish on from my perspective, it's that, gosh, it's an absolutely horrible thing, but there really is so much that can come out of going through an experience like that. Look, very much so, I think. And as you were talking, I remembered a metaphor, the way one person put it with trauma, and it sort of has a, a relevance 
to what it's like. He said, look, it's like you've got this wheel and there's this bit sticking out of part of the wheel and as the wheel does a rotation, goes clunk, goes around, goes clunk. He said, it's like the bit that sticks out. And in a way, even though it wasn't maybe the most elegant analogy, it sort of, I knew exactly what he meant. And this disruption, that you couldn't get beyond this disruption that was interfering with how you're moving forward in your life or whatever, but over a period of time, then that can resolve. And I think of a metaphor that my grandmother used when she said that life is like a jigsaw puzzle. And the longer you live, the more you can see the jigsaw puzzle pieces fall into place. And I really relate to that. And when I think back of having been depressed, say, 30 years ago, hospitalised, and there were trauma elements to that. It related partly to very difficult hospital politics and things like that, an overwhelming kind of situation. But when I look back to having been through that experience, so many good things that have happened in my life afterwards, and certainly my learning in my field was greatly advanced by having had that personal experience. It's like the jigsaw puzzle pieces come into place. And and so it does become integrated within your life often. Many people find that. Many people find it adds another development or strand to their life or understanding. And you're getting at something else as well. It adds to empathy. If you've been through challenging circumstances yourself, automatically it's easier and more accessible to relate to other people in their difficulties and to be able to empathise with them. Well, just in uh, in finishing up, it reminds me of the Japanese art form. Is it called, uh, is it kintsukuroi? The Japanese bowls that are broken and then mended with golden joinery, I believe is the uh, the translation for that term. So yeah, look, if there's one thing that I suppose, yeah, it'd be good to leave everyone with today. It's the possibility of putting things back together with golden joinery. So Dad, thanks for today. And and look, I will again just mention that we've got the episode page up for the episode today and we've got the podcast page up at chrismackey.com slash podcast. We'll put all the resources that we've mentioned and all the resources that we've got on the website up for today's episode. Dad's been interesting today. We've uh, we've covered off some things that are, yeah, certainly a little bit more heavy topics, but geez, I, I just think they're so important because the more that we can get our head around this collectively, the more that we can really prosper together as a society. So not to be too sort of deep and broad with it, but at the same time, this is, I think, something where if we can get our head around it, it'll make such a positive difference. Yeah, thanks, Rowan. I agree with all of that.